This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Bob Comsick will have more in the news coming up at one o'clock, but we've learned that the Ontario Provincial Police have arrested two people, including a government employee, after an alleged security breach of the province's COVID-19 immunization system. So details on that coming up at one o'clock. This past Sunday, two residents of Toronto say they were bitten by a coyote at a park located at Bayview, north of Shepherd. Paramedics were called to the scene. None of the victims was taken to hospital. Now, ultimately, the coyote believed to have been involved was euthanized yesterday. This is just the recent issue, a recent issue with coyotes in Toronto, as sightings are up dramatically from last year, with some of the animals showing aggressive behavior. Joining us to discuss, Leslie Sampson, Executive Director of Coyote Watch Canada, and Esther Attard, Director of Toronto Animal Services. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Jane, for having me. Leslie, why so many more sightings in 21 than 20? There's a couple of factors, Jane, uh, with respect to those sightings. First of all, you know, we're all coming out of that COVID lull and um, many people were at home. Uh, People got more engaged on social media. So a lot of those sighting reports, I think if we look at the five-year plan in terms of coyote sightings and look back again next year and the year after, we'll see that they'll drop a little bit as well. But, you know, there it doesn't indicate that there is a, a boom in coyote populations. It's reflecting that more and more people are reporting those sightings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I was actually at a friend's place, I think it would have been back in the spring, and she borders on a ravine, and a coyote actually came up to the edge of their property and then went back down into the ravine. I didn't report it, but that would be an example of, um, you know, the fact that more of us are seeing them. Absolutely. And you know what, Jane, the thing is, too, the sighting reports are important. It provides a, a good benchmark for where there's engagement, if there's an uptick or a trend, an increase in coyote sightings, that then allows um, city officials to do their ground investigation to see if there's attractants in there or is this just a a typical home range for a a coyote family. Uh, If you've had an encounter with a coyote, whether it's a sighting or you've witnessed some aggressive behavior, of course, we want you to phone in. The numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. So, Esther, what is the municipal what is Toronto doing to manage this, you know, whether it's a problem or not, certainly a challenge of urban coyotes? Um, the base of our strategy is in education, is in educating people to um, be responsible, to keep um, garbage contained, to not feed um, wildlife intentionally, um, and to know how to respond to wildlife should they come too close um, or if they come on their property, um, and to know how to do aversion techniques to make sure that they stay safe and the coyotes maintain their boundaries between us. Leslie, for people who've never seen a coyote, what do they look like? Oh, great question, Jane. So our eastern coyotes here in Ontario, they can look quite different. Some can be more on the gray side, blondish, red, black, that even resemble a fairly blonde color. But what you want to look for to identify a wild canid correctly is the tail for a coyote when they're moving or standing still will always be pointed down. And for the most part, their tails are black tipped whereas a fox would have a white-tipped tail, and their ears are very pointy. But each uh, individual coyote can look quite different. So, if you know, check out our photos on our website for identification, and the City of Toronto has excellent resources to help folks identify who they're actually looking at. A website uh, or Google Coyote Watch Canada. Yes, okay. that'd be great. 
So, and how do they typically, how are they acting if, if you see them on the edge of, like my case, a ravine on a residential property? Are they keeping to themselves? Are they naturally aggressive? What is that normal habitat? Yeah, so I, I think especially with the landscape that Toronto presents, it's absolutely um, amazing biodiversity and green spaces. Ravines is a normal travel corridor for a wild range of species. But what what typically we would want residents to appreciate and recognize, if a coyote is continuously visiting, visiting the property, you want to do that, um, you know, wildlife proofing inventory. Do you have attractants there? Is this coyote just there temporarily because there's construction happening within the city? And so we want residents to recognize when a coyote is um, overstaying their welcome. And then there's mitigative steps that can be taken, as Esther mentioned, the aversioning, and also ensuring that, you know, you're not putting food out for other wildlife species because coyote will come mm-hmm. come by there to get that easy food source as well. Esther, would you like to add to that? Um, just that um, coyotes should, uh, you should be noting where coyotes are and if they are coming too close to use that aversion conditioning and not be worried about using that to make sure that they are keeping their distance from your property and you know from where you are um and again looking out for the food because that is the biggest attractant and why coyotes come so close to people so you would so aversion conditioning would simply be to ensure that you don't have anything that would attract coyotes on your property to do that, but as well to use noise, to use like a big garbage bag and snap it shut to make noise and make yourself look bigger, ah, okay. um, to have the coyote leave your property. If they're just moving through your neighborhood and on their way to something and not paying attention to what's going on, that's fine. But if they stop and they stop on your property and they're just sitting there, they need to um, be told to move on because Mm -hmm. they're too close and you need to let us know because maybe there is someone feeding on purpose in your neighborhood and that's going to cause problems for the rest of the neighborhood. And then we can intervene and try and find those food sources and teach people how to do the aversion conditioning and teach people how to contain their garbage and wildproof their home. Okay, good to know. Let's go to Steve in Scarborough. Steve, what would you like to add. All right, Darren, Brimley, Brimley and Falawan, there's a park. In the summer, I saw three coyotes during the day, and there's a playground there, okay? I phoned the police. They didn't care about it. I phoned 311. She put me on hold for 10 minutes. She tells me to call animal control. And they say, make noise, and they said, but they did not care. I was blowing the horn. I was yelling. They did not care at all. But the thing is dangerous because there's a playground there with your kitties, for God's sake. Okay, our, our connection is not that great, but I do appreciate the call. Steve, thank you for phoning in. Um, what should you do? Uh, let's start with you, Esther. What should you do if you sight a coyote or if you're concerned that you may be witnessing some aggressive behavior? You, you should call 311 and report it, and they will let animal services know. And then if we can, we will send someone immediately to um, look into it. If you're there and in your car and, and blowing a horn, you may not be close enough to the coyotes for them to associate that they should move on. So it may really take you to go there and walk towards them and make the noise to get them to move on. Just simply them being in a park, that's not where we would want them to be because children do play there. So it is important to let them know that that's not a good space for them. Um, And when they don't respond, you need to move in and move closer. Uh, Leslie, um, we've heard stories uh, back in July, a 10-year-old girl and her dog were apparently chased by a coyote in Scarborough. Uh, The coyote is said to have attacked the dog, leaving it with serious injuries. The canine was later, the coyote was later relocated to a wildlife sanctuary in Rosso, Ontario. Are these the exceptions, these stories, or, uh, you know, are coyotes naturally violent, aggressive, uh, wanting to interact uh, in, in that sort of a manner with another animal? So with coyotes, they're part of the same family as our domestic dogs that we live and breathe our whole lives around most folks and so with coyotes another dog is like a predator or a competitor for food uh, i would say that 
you know, considering the number of dogs that are in Toronto and coyotes where they have their home ranges, these incidents are not common. But when they do happen, it is a, a wake-up call for residents and for, uh, for us, for city officials, to work together to identify what those attractants are. And that particular coyote that you're mentioning, which is was uh, Urban 23, that uh, male coyote was fed constantly by people. And so in that particular area, uh, the community came together. They started wildlife proofing their homes. They stopped feeding ducks on the front lawn. And it was quite amazing. And three public education events took place right at one of the parks where Urban 23 had been spotted um, you know, earlier on in the summer. So these incidents all kind of, you know, we have to stand up and take notice and provide the support and the education, which uh, Toronto Animal Services, Coyote Watch Canada, Toronto Wildlife Centre, we work together and really uh, we're on the ground doing that investigation and supporting the community. Great information. Thank you both for your time. Thank you for having us, Jane. Thank you so much. Take care. Leslie Sampson is Executive Director of Coyote Watch Canada, and Esther Attard is Director of Toronto Animal Services. Jane, for Libby, one more time tomorrow. Uh, Bob Comsick has some breaking news. That is coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns on Thursday. People in this province got some good news yesterday. Ontario optometrists have paused their job action and after nearly three months are once again providing eye care to people 65 and older and those 18 and under as formal negotiations with the Ministry of Health get underway. Optometrists withdrew the OHIP covered services because they say they have been dramatically underfunded by the provincial government. They say that an eye appointment is about $80, but they're only given about 55% of that from the government. Before optometrists began withdrawing their OHIP-funded services for the over-65s and the under-19s, they were offered by Health Minister Christine Elliott $39 million in retroactive costs and an 8.5% increase going forward. They say that is not even close to enough. Representatives with both the Ontario Association of Optometrists and the Ministry of Health have told Fight Back there is a media blackout during negotiations, so they are unable to comment publicly. So we've gone to the opposition health critic to get more information. NDP MPP France Jelena joins us to talk about the developments. France, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. So what was going on behind the scenes? Do you have any insight into the developments that led to the pause on the work, um, the work stoppage and getting back to the table? Well, I can tell you that way back in December of 2020, so that's almost a year ago, the optometrist made it really clear uh, that they needed a way, a formal way to negotiate with the Ontario government. They had taken a vote. The vote was over close to 95% of them voted in favor of job action if nothing happened by September 1st. Came September 1st, nothing had happened. So they went ahead with their uh, job action, which is to refuse to see people who are covered by OHIP. And you've said in your intro, anybody over the age of 65, anybody under the age of 18, and there are a few people who are covered because of uh, different diseases. Mm -hmm. So if you were covered by OHIP, all of them refused to see you. And that went on for three months. I cannot tell you the amount of petitions that we have received from people who were not happy with this. Um, It started when, on September 1st, the kids went back to school. Yay, finally, you don't do school on Zoom anymore. You're back with your friends. You are looking at a, it's not a blackboard anymore, it's a whiteboard. And then you discover that your kids are not able to (laughs) read what's on the whiteboard in these glasses. And there was no way to get an eye exam for those people. 
very soon after, a petition started coming in from people over the age of 65 who, for a number of reasons, I would say the number one reason, they just had cataract surgery, they could finally see well, they needed their uh, glasses adjusted, and they could not get in to see an optometrist. And this went on for three long months. We kept asking in the house, asking the minister, uh, why don't you sit down with them and, you know, like, and negotiate a fair deal? I'm not saying give them everything they ask for, but sit down and negotiate. And she would always answer uh, that they had uh, given them $39 million in retro pay and they were offering. I would ask the exact same questions of the optometrist. They would say, we, we had one <laughs> short uh, discussion with the ministry where they came and offered the $39 million retro pay and the 8.5, but there was never a negotiation that took place. There was never time allocated to them so that they can make their pitch to say um, things have changed in the last 30 years <laughs> since we last negotiated their fees, and, uh, and here's what would make more sense. So finally, after three long months, um, they have agreed to sit down, uh, talk to a mediator, and uh, find a way forward. So fingers crossed, uh, the optometrist wanted to show good faith and uh, stop their job action as of this morning. A very interesting uh, backdrop. It, it was unfortunate that people in this province who are covered by OHIP, and, and we had so many people calling in to fight back, over 65s who said, listen, I'm happy to write a check for $80 to get my eyes done, or eyes checked, but, they, but of course, if it's paid for by OHIP, you can't circumvent that. We had stories of people having to wait in the ER for hours on end before they could get referred to an ophthalmologist because the ophthalmologist wouldn't see them first. I mean, the people of this province in both of those demographics, they were held hostage for nearly three months. Uh, Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And I'm not a doctor by any means, uh, but I know that for some people, they will have lifelong consequences of that. Uh, The kids who now hate schools because he can't see nothing when he's Mm -hmm. in school, and a lot of elderly people who need their eyes checked because of underlying medical issues, who did not have access for all that time, uh, it, it was horrible. Well, and those are the people we want to hear from again. I know you've called in in the past, but how did this work stoppage affect your eyesight and your eye health? The numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. The Zoomers group CARP, A New Vision of Aging, Franz, I'm sure you know. Oh, very well. Because you were mentioning there about all the letters you were getting. Thousands of CARP members wrote letters to say they did not want to be stuck in the middle of this dispute and that the Ministry of Health representatives need to sit down with representatives of the OAO and get this sorted out. Uh, How big of an impact did that letter writing have in this decision, uh, finally coming to uh, sit down for formal negotiations? I would say huge, huge. We all, most, all members of the NDP, we stood up in the House holding like uh, half half a foot worth of papers, uh, like inches thick of papers that we were receiving, uh, letters, uh, petitions of, of people who were telling the government, you know, like, negotiate in good faith. This cannot go on. This is how it is affecting my life. And then we would go on. Some people give us uh, permission to uh, name them in the legislature. So we would read their letter and show how this was having a profound impact on their overall health. And, uh, you know, like your eye, eye health is, is health. If, if you can't see, if you don't have the right prescription, if you can't drive, if you can't um, go on with your activities of daily living... Uh, and letters after letters, we read them, and no matter which party you're from, we are all human beings. You cannot listen 
to stories after stories of people that are being affected by the lack of action from a government and continue your inaction. So emails work when you oh, write yeah. to your, when you send an email to your MPP. There, you know, it's only one, but a lot of them together can make it a difference. And and you know, I'm wondering how big of a motivation is next June's election, France, that they wanted this optometrist situation way behind them by the time we go to vote? Oh, I'm sure it's always taken into account. I wish they made the right decisions for the right reason. Uh, That is that people of Ontario over 65 should have access to eye care when they need it. And I hope that's what motivated them. Uh, Was it that they wanted to calm the fury of of over people over 65 were getting really uh, angry about what was going on? Well, we we know people. We know that people over sixty-five vote. Like three out of four uh, people in that age group turn out to vote. So it's not something you want to still be happening by next spring. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and and when they start to speak up, and when they start to write, and when they start to send email, and when they start to sign petition. Um, I would say all politicians, we should listen to everyone, uh, but all politicians listen. Um, we all know that this is a demographic that, that vote, a demographic that follows what's going on, that know what the government responsibilities are, and uh, they were holding the, the government to their responsibility and to account. And I have no doubt that they played a huge part in getting today as the first day where uh, finally those services are offered again. France, I want to ask you what we can afford to be paying the optometrist for these OHIP-funded services in just a moment. But to the phones now, Steve and Barry. Uh, Steve, what would you like to add? Steve, go ahead. You're on the air. You're on the air. Yeah, I'm a senior, and I've got a cataract, and I was told even before this walkout that it was going to be a year, you know, waiting to get it done. And then I've, I've had an appointment cancelled with the optometrist. I don't complain with them. My problem is, how come there's been no increase since 1989? And look at all the f- governments we've had. And I just listened to the NDP critic there. Why didn't they say something when the Liberals were in charge before? This has been going on since 89. Sometimes you have to stop and say, hey, maybe we have to hold something back to get something when no one's listening to us. Steve, thank you for that. I'm going to put this over to France Jelena. It's very true. All the parties uh, have uh, played a part in not having this amount increased for all this time. Oh, the, uh, uh, I mean, the Liberals were in power the uh, for the last 15 years um, when, uh, I would say, at the beginning, the optometrists were rather You will remember that changes were made uh, where we all used to have uh, free access to optometry, and then changes were made where um, most of us, uh, over 18, below 65, now have to pay to go see the optometrist. So when those changes were made, I would say the optometrist went really quiet for quite a a long time, Uh, but now they really came back and said, um, the the government pays for the people over 65. This cohort is getting bigger all the time, mm-hmm. which is good, and uh, they would like to be paid fairly. But I wouldn't say that they had been really vocal. Um, I started to hear about this more and more, I would say, in 2015. Uh, they started to bring this issue up when they came to see me and start to talk about how much they were being paid for OHIP-covered services versus what they charge. Uh, to you know, to pay their bills and make a profit, and uh, to people who has to pay uh, or have private insurance, and and then it came to the job action in in 2021. Okay, so what is a reasonable amount to be paying um, for the government to pay the optometrist for an eye care appointment for people 65 over and 18 and under? I have absolutely no idea. But I can tell you that the optometrists have done a lot of work to show here's what it costs to run their offices, here's what it costs to uh, buy the equipment, to do the eye exam and all of this, Mm -hmm. and they are willing and able to share that with the government so that you come 
to a fair agreement. Uh, what will a fair agreement be? Uh, there's always two sides to the story. They're asking right now for close to $80 a visit. Uh, will it end up there or will it end up somewhere between the 44 that they pay, they're getting paid now and the 80 that they're demanding? Uh, usually negotiations mean take and give on both sides. Uh, but w- what is the fair price? I don't have access to all of the information that they have put together to negotiate. They won't negotiate with me. Mm-hmm. They negotiate with the Ministry of Health. Right. I appreciate your honesty. It's not very often you hear a politician say, I have no idea. It's kind of refreshing. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Franz. You're welcome. I really appreciate your insight into the issue. And yes, let's hope the optometrists and the PC government get a deal so uh, Ontarians can feel reassured that they will continue to receive their OHIP-funded eye care. Coming up next here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane for Libby, what to do about Toronto's coyote problem. That is next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back on Fight Back Thursday. So lucky me, I get to chat with our strategy panelists today. Always a great conversation about how our politicians are conducting themselves and how it affects us, the voters, the taxpayers. John Capobianco is Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. And Charles Souza is a former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. Hello to you all. Hey, Jane. Jane. Well, let's begin with what to expect from the throne speech in Ottawa, outlining the priorities by the minority Trudeau Liberals for the next session of Parliament, delivered next hour by Governor General Mary Simon. Charles, what do you expect to hear? I think it'll be split into two factions, one around crisis management, you know, issues with regards to the floods in B.C. and the pandemic issues, uh, even issues in respect to the Indigenous community and, and things regarding the veteran affairs. And then the forward-looking aspect will be how is it that they're going to have economic recovery and what are they going to do with the environmental issues. And uh, issues around foreign affairs will be a big part of it with U.S. protectionism, the auto pact, uh, child care and sick days will be brought forward. And I think they'll talk about gun violence. They'll talk about some of the hate that's still out there, and it's a very toxic nature in Parliament and in social media, and I think they're going to try to address some of those issues as well. And fortunately, they are at the start of a new mandate, and the NDP will play with them, and there'll be a lot of noise, but there won't be a lot of opposition. I think they'll be able to get through some of those priorities that they want to deliver upon, which is probably in common with all parties. Well, and we'll talk about that dynamic as well that we can expect to see and hear in Parliament. Karen, what are you looking forward to hearing? Uh, what would you like to see? What do you think that we'll hear? I think that uh, there won't be a lot of specifics. I, I, I think there'll be things will be pretty vague because as they're still making their way through trying to figure out what they have support for and what they don't, the Liberals probably won't commit to anything too strongly other than the, as Charles mentioned, the directional setting of uh, the ongoing reconciliation and how that file needs to be advanced and um, alongside the, the other uh, the COVID benefits and how that's going to get managed. And, you know, I, I think people are looking to hear, certainly I would be interested to hear what the federal government's plan is moving forward and tackling the, the, the economic challenges that we have and that there seems to be uh, job vacancies, but there's also inflation, and then there's a you know a concern about the indebtedness of many businesses and individuals. And so, how all those things are? Does the government have a sense of how that's going to get managed, or what is that plan? Uh, John, what do you expect to hear? Well, you know, Jane, uh, you know, uh, throne speeches are fascinating milestones for governments, both both you know governments who are, are in power, and then of course new governments that come in. In, in the case of the Liberals that just won, won re-election, um, and they're they're an opportunity for governments to reset if if they've been in power for some time, or to set the stage for what is going to be the situation uh, over the course of the next year, two years, or three years, given the minority government and how long this will last. So it's going to be an important one for this government because we really haven't seen. 
uh, or been in the House of, of Commons for some five months, so, you know, when the, when the election was called and, and since then. So it has been a long time uh, for, for parliamentarians. And we saw yesterday with the election of the Speaker how, uh, how excited everybody was to be in the House and, and uh, for the first time in a long time, because obviously it's been a hybrid for, for some time now. So I think it's going to be an important one that's going to have to have the Liberals focus on, I think, their election promises. So uh, the pandemic and, and what they've done and, and more importantly, what they're going to do by way of recovery. And we've talked about this, um, both Charles and Karen mentioned this, sort of the issue of, 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 of the um, benefits and having to sort of slow them down. Businesses are now asking government to really wane them off and, and, and do other, other issues that might incent people back to work because, of course, inflation is going high. So the economy, what they're going to do with, uh, with post-pandemic relief is going to be important. PEI potatoes, British Columbia, those are two regional issues that are affecting this government today. You know, we're seeing the, the devastation in British Columbia, but also the issue of the PEI potatoes not being able to ship, uh, being shipped to the, to the U.S., and both, uh, both levels need to have some sort of emergency debate. So whether or not the government's going to talk about that today, uh, and most throne speeches are mostly, you know, high-level and, and futuristic thinking, so I'm, I'm not sure that's going to be talked about today, but, but that's going to be something that the government's going to have to face pretty quick. Well, how big of an issue as well, and you've all touched on it, but to speak specifically to it, it came up yesterday with our Zoomer squad as an issue for older Canadians on fixed incomes, the cost of living, uh, and what can be done to curb rising inflation. Charles? That is an issue. It's an issue for those on fixed income. It's also an issue for young people in regards to affordable housing. And both of those things have to be addressed as they go forward. And part of their response to that is to provide greater more sick days for those that are employed and child care for the young families but for seniors um, it is a dichotomy they have introduced a bank tax which caught the industry completely by surprise and that is a way to try to facilitate their uh, deficits as they go forward and at the same time reinvest in the economy how's that going to help seniors um, it's a, it's 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 quite odd because most of their portfolios are in banks. And so, you know, on the one hand, they're going to go after some institutions that are providing so much of that fixed income for their behalf, but at the same time trying to find ways to uh, bring more revenues into the you know, government coffers. Uh, seniors, it's all about, and it's now provincially driven as well, to provide some greater supports for long-term care and home care and PSWs and other supports. Uh, for those that are most vulnerable. Uh, but it's no easy answer, and that's always been a case for those on fixed income. Karen, you know, affordable housing, cost of living, it all goes hand in hand. And uh, for those of us out there who are listening, who have children, adult children, who are looking at you know rising gas prices, rising grocery prices, and of course the housing prices in the big cities, especially Toronto, it just seems like it's almost, it will never be affordable. Yeah, it does have that sense, and um, it is. It's an interesting predicament we're in because they this idea that this inflation is transitory is, and all the experts are saying it. And I have to believe the experts because they're above my pay grade. But you know, my lived experience is that you know, the food prices in restaurants that have escalated—that's not transitory. That that's going to be permanent. And now they're actually talking about um, building in. Uh, tips and pensions to, to waiters and sal- server salaries. So that's going to either further increase um, going out, as an example. And then even if inflation does rise a few points, it might put it might temper home sales, but we're also at a level where it's pro- I don't know if it's going to go down. So once the prices go up, it's not clear to me that they go down a lot. They might not just go up as much. But we're all, but we're, to your point, Jane, things are already becoming unaffordable. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very difficult environment. And it, it, it does cause um, me pause, certainly when I think about what the future looks like for my kids, because, mm-hmm. you know, going out for dinner has become much more expensive. And the view is, well, we've got a couple extra bucks in our pocket, so it's not a big deal. But, you know, six months from now, it will be a bigger deal when interest rates go up. Those prices aren't coming down. Housing prices probably won't come down that much. And um, the employment prospects, I don't know what they're going to look like. So there's... Um, not to be all doom and gloom, but there's certainly a lot of structural issues that need to be at least talked about. And I think that this whole idea that this inflation is transitory is, is a misleading one. John, would you like to add to that? 
Well, no, I nothing nothing to, to deviate much from from what Charles and Karen were saying. But bottom line, it is an issue for sure, Jane. I think that that this government is going to have to tackle um, in, in the spirit of inflation and, and of course the fact that it's been rising more than more than ever. And, and we've heard from the the governor of the Bank of Canada who said that it's transitional. That you know we're going to see that, and it's of course something to be expected because of the pandemic and and, and what's coming up. So it's going to be there's going to be some ups and some highs and some lows. But it's going to affect some people more than others. Certainly the seniors. Um, are going to are going to who are on fixed income are going to see that hugely affect them. So what? What is government going to do by way of trying to control it? And, and Karen said prices won't go down, but the question, of course, is remain remains: How can you con- create a stop from prices continuing to go up uh, further? Like gas is now, you know, in some cases a buck sixty. You know, that's just that's incredible for people who are now able to get up and around and travel. Uh, in some cases, because of the restrictions being lowered, um, you know, I'm finding more and more people that are not doing that because it's expensive to do that. So it's a gov- it's an issue this government's going to have to face for sure. Uh, and hopefully they'll address it in the throne speech uh, in, in the coming hours. If you'd like to get in on the conversation with our strategy panel, the phone lines are always open here at Fight Back. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, Charles Souza, Jane for Libby. One of the uh, immediate priorities during uh, this next parliamentary session, they need to change uh, the policies around relief benefits uh, tied to the pandemic. And interestingly, Charles, we had NDP leader Jagmeet Singh coming out yesterday saying, let's do it. Let's get on with it, with governing, taking care of people. But he also said he won't back legislation on reducing COVID benefits. So how is that going to work out? Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma. I mean, on the one hand, we need people to get back to work uh, to get the economy moving. At the same time, people are still in need of supports. And I think he said, I'll support any policy that provides support for people, but if it hurts, I won't do it. But, you know, in the end, uh, the offsets are sick days, are the child care, are the other initiatives that they're putting forward to try to support families and pocketbook issues. Um, but we can't continue on with pandemic relief forever. Uh, the government is just not sustainable. So they have to find innovative ways, and corporates and businesses are, are, are screaming for some people to get back to work so that we can move on with our economy. So it's going to have to start to, maybe they'll do it in stages, and, and you know, they'll, they'll modify some of the relief. Uh, but it has to start to work. They have to start to implement some some elimination of some of those reliefs as they go forward. So in terms of the cooperation and collaboration that we will see with the second minority government, Karen, is it is it a distraction of the minority government and all the negotiating that goes ar- around trying to get legislation passed? Or is it a benefit for Canadians uh, to see uh, their, the politicians in the House of Commons work out agreements that are good for most of the people? Yeah, I think it's a benefit in this case, uh, Jane, and because uh, you know the Liberals ha- they they didn't uh, really govern as a minority government in the last go round, and um, that was lots, for lots of reasons. In that they because there was a pandemic and they had to act quickly and they exercised their their authority, and then there was a, a deference of opposition parties to to interfere with what was seen to be a, a national crisis, and, and it, not just national but global crisis. So the Liberals really didn't get used to having to really negotiate. And so this is going to be necessary uh, for as long as this Parliament lasts. Mm -hmm. The Liberals are going to have to reach out and reach across the party lines and make some concessions that maybe that they didn't feel they needed to in the past. And I quite frankly think that's good for the country and good for the party because the reality is the Liberals only got, what, 34% of the popular vote, 35 and so they also need to remember like, they, that they're not reflecting the majority of the Canadian public opinion and that they do need input from the other parties in order to bring forward policies that will be sustainable. I I enjoyed, and I think a lot of Canadians enjoy, when the Speaker tries to talk to everybody in the House of Commons and bring everybody together. John, Anthony Rota gave them all a speech yesterday on cross-party communication, that they have more in common than they do uh, that's different. And and I know it's all symbolic, and it is the beginning of the parliamentary session, but do you think that any of that actually resonates on either side of the aisle? 
For about 10 minutes, uh, Jane. And, uh, uh, and Anthony Rhoda, um, you know, who I thought is, I think is a really good, a really good speaker. And I sort of, I, I watched him, of course, when he was speaker previous to the election. And of course, his, his re-election wasn't much of a surprise to, to many who follow this. Um, and I thought his speech was really warm and, and uh, heartfelt, uh, you know, when he, when he accepted the, uh, the uh, the vote and, and and sort of became the speaker and I, and I think he even mentioned a couple of times where he said look you know reach out to your members from across the aisle it doesn't matter from a political divide because you'll learn issues and he actually referenced that he meant he he spoke with one of his uh, one of his colleagues from another party who they found out they had ancestral uh, connections back in Italy uh, which I thought was really interesting and and you know Charles will know because of course he he, he in the provincial legislature it, it is hard for for and and very seldom when all parties come together on certain issues. And, of course, there are issues that all parties do come together and, and work together on issues. And during the crisis was, was an example when, when all parties work together in some ways. But that only lasts for about, uh, for about 10 minutes. Once the throne speech gets delivered and then there's a debate on the throne speech, you'll see it back to, back to the normal cut and thrust of, of, uh, of the parliamentary of the parliament. But I'll, I'll say one other thing to Jane, that is with respect to minority governments. There's a reason why they usually last about 18 months, because there's no desire to go to the electors uh, so quickly after an election campaign, especially when this election, so many people and so many Canadians were, were scratching ahead as to why we got into it. So I think you're going to see a little bit of cooperation. The Liberals and the NDP will be cooperating quite often, but there'll be times, especially when it comes to relieving the uh, the relief payments, where maybe the Conservatives will side with the Liberals on that. So you'll see this this Liberal government at least survive for about, about 18 months to two years for, for almost for sure, for certain. Well, certainly we are seeing agreement on uh, COVID vaccination. I mean, the House was basically full, but for a few seats. So even though there may be some holdouts who are not vaccinated, uh, it looks like, Charles, that uh, Aaron O'Toole's MPs, for the most part, have received both shots of vaccine. Uh, So he says, and he's not fully disclosed in terms of those that have exceptions. Um, And I can appreciate not wanting to talk about people's health, but, you know, really shouldn't be a matter for any particular party to disclose. It should be up to the security of of the House and let them make their appropriate uh, decisions as to who is appropriate, who can come and who can't. And, uh, uh, but, you know, I mean, the, the issue is many have had exceptions. I don't know how many those are, which is outside the norm in, in Canada. Um, but for O'Toole's case, he needs to get back to the House. He needs to... He wants to be away from his internal uh, misgivings and the party's uh, infighting. He wants to get back in the House. He needs a new podium. He needs to stand up as the opposition member and the leader of the opposition to, uh, to improve his own political fortunes. Um, but this is certainly something that's uh, causing him concern, and, and all of us, for that matter, really. The, uh, the fact that people are still, and he's not the only one, obviously, we're gonna be, we may talk about uh, the councillor who also... Uh, has misleading information and basically people are not uh, in, they don't they lack trust in big pharma and that's part of the issue i think O'Toole's dealing with we'll change topics here go from federal politics to provincial politics but the bridge on this is uh the federal government will likely be implementing 10 days of paid sick leave for federally regulated workers at the same time on the lawn of queen's park yesterday healthcare workers gathered uh to encourage uh, doug ford and his uh government to pass Bill 8, which would give healthcare workers in this province 10 days of paid sick leave. Um, it does not look like that is likely to pass. Uh, is there, uh, you know, the strategy in all of this, Karen, d- is, especially in light of the pandemic and how hard healthcare workers have been at the job and nurses not getting any more than a 1% increase, you know, why would Doug Ford hold out on extra paid sick days? Yeah, it's kind of a question I don't really understand either, um, other than unless there's some back-end complications that I'm not fully appreciating in terms of if he mandates it, then the hospitals have to pay for it, and maybe the hospitals are lobbying behind the scenes not to have it done. So, But, but I, I don't know, because it seems to me one of those po- policies that w- would be relatively widely embraced by not just frontline workers, but the general public that understands the, the hardship over the last two years that frontline workers particularly in healthcare, uh, have been exposed to. 
And so, you know, again, unless there's something behind the scenes, it's not immediately clear. I can't explain it. And further to that, Charles, um, the the 1% pay increase for public sector workers, nurses are included in that. Uh, You've got this push for 10 paid sick days and you've got an election coming up in the spring. Um, You know, in terms of the strategy to be so resistant on these progressive policies uh, just doesn't make sense. Yeah, even when I was there, we also had uh, pay restrictions and pay freezes for a number of years. And it's tough. Bill 124 is one that's restricting pay for 1%. The nurses are are also feeling the pinch. They feel overworked. They feel underpaid. And worse, they feel underappreciated as a result. And uh, with inflation now taking hold, it's an, it's understandable that they're fighting back. Um, it's a tough thing for, for the, the government uh, because... I, I still don't believe their MPPs have been uh, have paid made pay increases either. So it's they it can't continue to the extent that they have to find revenue. And these inflation measures and these uh, salaries are the biggest part of a government's budget. Uh, they have to control them, and that's why there's ongoing battles between teachers and uh, and all the other unions that are affected by it. But it's it's disconcerting when you see the rest of the market um, providing greater support and greater remuneration. But the fact that they're providing all these sick days and other matters is also a supplementary benefit. So that balance has to be understood, and it's going to be a tight, it's going to be tough for, for the governor. The John, can you, could John, can you enlighten us at all on, on this strategy uh, moving forward in the final few months before the election? Well, I think I think you know, the premier has been pretty clear with respect to his his view on on this on on a number of issues, saying that it's something that the federal government should take a leadership role on, which which they're doing, and hopefully you'll see that in the throne speech. But also, I think the premier has been pretty clear throughout the pandemic that he's always had um, the, the workers' backs. Right, he was the first to introduce unlimited job protected leave, so that nobody can nobody had the choice to between their jobs and their health for one. And then I think he also put in the putting workers first act. Uh, which, by the way, was passed unanimously for flexible paid sick days uh, where no sick notes were needed. So there's a lot of things that the government put in place during the pandemic that uh, that, that actually spoke to um, workers' ability to be able to take sick leave and, and, you know, not have to be burdened by by getting notes and this and that. So I think, you know, I think the Premier's always been pretty confident that, that his policies have always had um, the interest of workers and, and uh, through the pandemic, and you'll see that, I think, throughout the next little while and, uh, up until the election. I want to know, I have a specific question to Karen about Toronto City Council uh, as a former councillor, but I also want to get all of your reactions to that uh, out-of-the-blue announcement yesterday from the optometrist that they would restore eye care service uh, for OHIP-funded demographics, the 65-plusers and the under-19s, and we will address this further in the second half of the show. Uh, Charles, what was what do you think was going on behind the scenes? I mean, it has been almost three months that they've withdrawn those services. Yeah, and there was a lot of lobbying by them to have it reinstated, and it's been a battle when we were there. We uh, gave them that opportunity to uh, even provide OHIP and and, uh, and prescription opportunity. Um, yeah, it, it's, it, you know, listen, it's another medical service that's, that's afforded to us and uh, better for us. Yeah, better for us. But I mean, it was almost to the point where it was contradictory to everything we believe in universal health care, John, to not have those services for the better part of three months. Well, and I think that the Minister of Health continually tried and begged to, for, for the association to uh, to come back to the negotiating table. I think they um, put in a lot of money, they being the government, put a lot of money into the association and into the optometrist directly for to try to lay some of their concerns that they had with rising costs. And um, so, you know, I don't know. I think there was a little bit of, of, of negotiating that was going on in the background, and, and I think the optometrist took the took the position of going public on the on the battle and re- with, with withholding services, and the government had to force to to go back and, and battle this. And whenever these kind of debates and these kind of issues get get to be public information, Jane, as you mm-hmm. know, public debated publicly, then then both sides kind of you know dig in their heels because they don't want to concede anything. But you know, at the end of the day, I'm glad it's being resolved. I'm glad they're back at the negotiating table, and and I suspect this will be an issue that will be resolved in short order, certainly before the next election. 
Very good. Karen, I want to get your take on what's happened with Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam. In recent days, she published an op-ed in the Toronto Sun last Thursday, uh, making some controversial comments about understanding people who choose not to get vaccinated. She is the vice chair of the Board of Health. Well, since then, she has apologized for any comments she said uh, which were misleading, and she's also uh, decided not to extend her term as vice chair of the Board of Health uh, when it comes up next month. Your reaction to all of this? You know, I think it's actually quite fascinating, to be honest, because I read the article and there was one line in there that, that could be subject to some controversy, which is um, that vaccinated people can get COVID and can still transmit it to others just as easily as those that are unvaccinated. Now, that's probably not the case, but nonetheless, it's true because even people in hospital um, are vaccinated and they have COVID. And if you are vaccinated and test positive for COVID, you're still expected to quarantine, albeit for a lesser period of time. So it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit interesting, the amount of controversy that she's generated by, I guess, defending, as it were, people's choices not to get vaccinated. But, but I, I do think that we've collectively fallen into the position that you have to get vaccinated or you're not allowed to be part of society. And, and I think that that is actually something that we need to rethink. Mm. Because it's pretty easy to go there, and I've gone there. I'm like, well, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you get sick. Oh, well, that's on you. But, but it is, um, you know, I've also had to let people go because they didn't get vaccinated from from their job. Right. And then when you think about the increasing alienation of individuals who aren't vaccinated for whatever reason, and their inability to access services, um, it it actually doesn't help the dialogue because they're now becoming further and further and further alienated and isolated. And is that what we want to do as Canadians? And so I think, to be honest with you, there is actual general merit to some of the things that she was bringing up. And I don't share her politics, but, you know, and I think it's also interesting that it's typically been the fringe, as it were, conservatives who seem to be beating the anti-vaxxer drum. But here is a progressive, uh, you know, new Democrat uh, city councilor coming out and saying things in, a, in a, I think, a much more sophisticated way, perhaps. But nonetheless, something that I I think that we actually do need to consider um, more thoughtfully than maybe we have been. Well, it sounds it enters into the next phase. It sounds like her motivation is her parents who have chosen Mm -hmm. not to be vaccinated. So she has an emotional connection to people Mm -hmm. who have chosen not to get the shots. Mm -hmm. And and that could Mm -hmm. that I mean, she even admitted that she was using her parents situation to highlight uh, this sentiment. So it's interesting when policy, you know, it's like the rational and irrational thoughts, right? They don't always go together. But do you think that stepping down from the Board of uh, Health was the right thing? Was that necessary? Yeah, I, I, I think that um, maybe for her personally, because she just didn't want to be embroiled in this controversy. But nonetheless, I think that she has left us with something that we do need to consider to talk about in a way that maybe we haven't been as open to Uh, over the last several months as we were trying to, you know, get back to normal, as it were. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you all, our strategy panelists. Thanks for your time this Tuesday. Thanks. All the best. Thanks, Jane. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. It's Jane for Libby, and still to come, Eye Care in Ontario is back. If you've been affected by the work stoppage, which officially ended today, we'd like to hear from you. Numbers to call 416 360 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.